<laughs> Hello. Hello. You alright? Yeah. I'm thinking we should ask in public, isn't it? <laughs> but, uh, what are you going to say? No! <laughs> uh, that is your answer, then. Feel free to check yourself. Um, thanks. Thanks for the opportunity to come and share and talk. Um, I know most of you didn't do a choice, but thank you, Joseph. Uh, and it's, it is like sort of a home away from home. Come to some links and sharing. Uh, right from the early days of Joseph's Lounge uh, to, to now. Which is cool. I want to um, share a few thoughts with you uh, today that I hope will be helpful or encouraging and challenging. We'll see. But I want to start with a story about me as a young man. You might say, you are a young man. And I'd say, yes, that's correct. But an even younger man back when I was, uh, you know, in that, that sort of post-teenage but still not quite sure what was going on in my life phase, which fortunately we've all grown out of. Uh, but at that time, I was a pretty shy young guy. I was... Pretty insecure, and that definitely flowed into um, the way in which I connected with um, with the, the the ladies in my life. And, uh, and one of the things that happened for me a lot as a young man is when I lacked some of the um, confidence, um, but I was quite relational. I was I was a guy who had become really really good friends with a girl, you know. And um, and they would be sort of wonderful, and we would be good friends. And uh, I wonder if one day I could ever ask this person out. And then at some point in the connection, they would in the friendship, they would realise that that's probably a conversation that needed to be had. And they would often say to me, you know, something like, "Hey, it's so good being such good friends with you. Um, isn't it great how our friendship is one way?" We're now so comfortable with each other, we know that this won't become, you know, anything uh, else, but it's like you're a brother to me. Um, you know, like, that is great, isn't it? Oh, man, so good. Um, let me go home and weep gently into my pillow. Uh, now, fortunately, I very suppressed emotion, so I didn't cry. But, um, <laughs> I learned to bury those two and uh, help me keep up the facade. So um, one day I was uh, going out to catch up with a friend of mine and she was, she was amazing and beautiful and talented and smart and hilarious. And, uh, we went out for, for dinner uh, in town somewhere, which is the kind of thing a good brother would do. And, uh, and we were driving, I can't remember, it was before or after the dinner or whenever it was, we were driving in my 1990 Toyota Starter. Old shape. Uh, I don't really know about cars, just someone told me it was the old shape and I had it. I've not gone with that ever since. And she started a conversation, which I, and I knew where it was going. She said, Isn't it great? <laughs> She's like, Isn't it great how we're such, like, I really appreciate this friendship. And I was like, Yes, now I was like, You know what? I'm going to do it for once. I'm going to go preemptive strike. <laughs> And I'm going to jump in first now that she's opened up the uh, we're such good friends and I really like it kind of thing. And I was like, yes, it is great, isn't it? Isn't it great? And we're such good friends that we know that this will never be a thing because we're so, like, yeah. Um, is 
wasn't that great. And I thought, I'm going to do it for a change. And then she said, oh, yeah, I mean, that, yeah, that's not really what I was going to say, but yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess, I guess so. And I was like, hmm. <laughs> play out exactly as I anticipated. And then, you know, uh, that was the, sort of the evening ended shortly thereafter. Uh, and then a few years later, we were both married to other people by this point, and she was like, you know what I was, kind of the conversation I was trying to have that time, eh? And I was like, hmm. <laughs> you know, I was like interested in whether this friendship could actually have. And I was like, oh, really? Um, what's kind of interesting to me about that experience is how, um, I suppose, my set of experiences and also my, you know, personality probably, um, had contributed to shape me in such a way that the kind of story I had come to believe about myself and about my life meant that I interpreted this experience in a particular kind of way, right? And, um, and stories do that for us. The stories that we're told and the stories that we tell about ourselves and the stories that others tell us about our lives and our meaning and what's, what matters, these shape the way that we experience and interpret reality as it kind of unfolds before us. In this case, I had a very kind of set story in my life that um, that I was the brother figure, no matter what I could do, that's kind of the person that I would be, and that was me. And um, and so when I started to have uh, an experience of reality unfolding in front of me, I immediately interpreted it through the lens of how that story had, was shaping me to interpret this life. And in that particular case, interpreted it um, totally wrong from what was actually going on in the story. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and, and for us, you know, I'm really interested in this idea of how stories shape us. And I think for many of us who work in field of spirituality and faith, um, in particular, I suppose that's one of the things that often does fascinate us, is how stories function to shape us. And in many respects, um, you know, faith is offering us a contribution to that conversation. It is our faith story and the stories of our faith that help to shape us in particular kinds of ways. So that we come to see God, for example, the way that we talk about God when we talk about God. Uh, you know, that um, that conversation is, kind of, it is like one of those stories then that shapes the way that we see much of the rest of our life, shapes the way that we see ourselves and the others around us and the world in which we live and what the point is, where meaning is to be found, right? And so these stories of our faith become really, really important in, in shaping our sense of meaning and our way of interpreting reality. So I want to kind of hold that in mind today as we think about a particular story and then um, some, some contrasting stories and, and where that leads us. Right? So I'm going to share a story from the book of Acts, as Joseph said, we, uh, this was our first class together in our master's program. And uh, I think, yes, other than the first half hour, I think I spent the rest of the week come wait a second. How come nobody ever said any of this before? <laughs> um, and so, many of other subjects I like to, <laughs> like to share from Luke or Acts, uh, just for a long time's sake. So, here's a passage from chapter 8, verse 26. Now the angel, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Philip's uh, apostle of the church, go 
down to the road, there's a road that goes down from Jerusalem to visit Gaza. So he started out on his way to Egypt in Ethiopian unit, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kentucky, which means Queen of the Ethiopians. So he's in charge of the, the money for the, for the Queen's treasury. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Uh, and then Philip ran up to the chariot and uh, heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. Uh, now I, I love this because Philip is uh, an interventionist. Right? I would not do this. If the spirit had told me to go and stay near it, I would have run up to the chariot, heard the man reading Isaiah and gone, Interesting. Probably doesn't want to be bothered. Uh, I wouldn't want to interrupt him while he thinks about his life. I'll move on. Um, my wife, on the other hand, radical interventionist. And to be uncomfortable with the level of intervention she will engage with to help random people. You get into a lift with my wife, and somebody else gets in, and she says, Which floor would you like to go on? Did you know that on floor seven? You can go to that. And on floor nine, you can go to that. Is that where you wanted to go? Because I can take you there if you would like. And the poor person has just got on the lift, trying to go up the floor. I don't understand the level of intervention, but I think the lift does. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And this is the passage of scripture that Jennifer's reading, and it's, it's from Isaiah 52. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants when his life was taken from the earth? And the eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they travelled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. And then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared as a and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Um, it's a story full of curiosity for me. It's, a, it's an unusual story. It drops in spectacular things without even really um, thinking, without even really sort of expanding. You know, like the spectacular, the spectacular appearing and reappearing in, um, in remote kind of translocation of Philip from location to location. Barely gets a mention. It's just dropped in there as a little tidbit for you. Um, and then there's all of this other kind of curious stuff happening with with a Jewish apostle encountering an African eunuch uh, and the kind of conversation they have about Jesus. And it's, it's kind of, um, it's a story that's just chucked into the middle of the narrative of Acts. Um, not really specifically connected to, to any of the other stories that are happening, uh, but a really, really interesting story that connects to the overall purpose of what's going on uh, for the author here in the story. So, so to put it in context, let's, let's think about a bit about Luke Acts for a moment, something I always love to do here. Uh, the Gospel of Luke and, and the Book of Acts, two halves of the same piece of work, same author, telling a big story. The story of Jesus, and then how the story of Jesus flows into the birth of the church 
and how they're going to follow the Jesus, follow the way of Jesus as the church begins to grow and expand and do its thing. Right? And so it's one big story covered two bits. And the Gospel of Luke starts Jesus' ministry and his calling with this very specific um, sense of what Jesus' ministry is going to be about. It comes from the prophet Isaiah, from the enough, which, um, the same prophet that was human history. And uh, so Luke, in, in Luke records in Luke 4, 18, how Jesus goes to the synagogue and he reads this passage from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me and has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up broken hearted, freedom to the prisoner, and sight to the blind, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And what the Gospel of Luke does is it essentially sets up this idea that this um, is the sh- going to be the shape of the way in which Jesus understands his ministry, understands the kingdom of God. What it will look like when the kingdom of God will come is this. It's, it's fulfilling what the, the prophet Isaiah spoke about uh, many centuries before. And so as we begin to move through then the remainder of the Gospel of Luke, we find all of these stories uh, that are the outworking of what it looks like when that passage from Isaiah is put into action in and through the life of Jesus. And so we see someone like a, a man with leprosy who is unclean because of his condition and untouched and unlovable because of his condition who has been healed and restored and made whole and brought back into community. We see the story of a paralytic on a mat who is um, both finds his sins to be forgiven even though he didn't ask for it and his uh, disability to be healed in that moment and uh, and he is restored to uh, community and to wholeness. And we find uh, Jesus eating with tax collectors and other sort of naughty people, other people doing the wrong things uh, is where Jesus seems to be spending his time. And then we find the, the story of the faith of a gentle, gentile, gentle, maybe he was gentle, a centurion, gentle centurion is not, is not typical combo. Uh, but he was a Gentile centurion, uh, and this is kind of a radical thing in the middle of the story of Jesus, because as far as the Jewish faith was concerned at this time, um, the Messiah would come and restore Israel before before the Gentiles would be, uh, before the right would go out to the Gentiles. Israel itself needed to be sorted out. So the Messiah would come first for the Jewish people, and then things could move from there. Uh, and instead there's this Gentile centurion who's um, encouraged and exalted for his great faith and he receives the miracle that he's hoping for and there's a raising of a widow's son um, there's the anointing from a sinful woman you know, who by all categories is, is in the wrong camp and yet somehow seemed to be the one that's valued and embraced and brought in and the one who seemed to be closer to the heart of Christ and what Jesus is about than the religious people who are keen on excluding her and then there's a parable of a rich man and Lazarus and Lazarus is the poor white guy by the gate who really um, everybody knows suffers probably because of the sin of their life or because they were born into a world in which they don't really deserve to be well off. And yet uh, Jesus tells the story about how it's in fact uh, this poor man at the gate who is the one who kind of brought close to God. Uh, and there's a story of the prodigal son. You know, story after story after story, both parables and encounters and experiences where where Jesus is living out what it looks like to fulfill that sense of Isaiah's vision of what it looks like when the Spirit of the Lord will come upon this anointed one. And, um, and, and so there's this expansive, inclusive, embracing movement that sees the world differently. And uh, we, we come into the book of Acts, and Jesus um, says, Hey, um, gotta go. I'll be back sometime, maybe, maybe, maybe tomorrow. 
maybe not. Uh, I'm going to, but while I'm chatting to you, I'm just going to slowly disappear into the clouds. So any follow-up questions can be um, sent through later. And the church then uh, begins to um, have, they have this experience of the Spirit themselves. This same Spirit that Isaiah spoke about, the same Spirit that anointed and shaped the ministry of Christ, now flows through the, the life of the early church, and they begin to shape their ministry and their mission through very, very similar eyes. And so uh, the kind of stories that we start to see happening here mirror and reflect some of what was going on in the Gospel of Luke, but now through the followers of Jesus. Yeah? Yep. And... Um, and then we get through to Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 8, and, and this is continuing to, to move forward. We haven't yet had any kind of a movement beyond the Jewish community, so at this point in the story, Christianity is still very much a Jewish movement. It's Jewish people who have now come to see and believe that Jesus is the Messiah that they have been promised. Right? That's what Christianity is at this point in the story. And at this point, there is certainly no general allowance for non-Jewish people to be just folded into a story without some big conversation. And in fact, some big conversations do happen later in order to act about this very issue. But we've not had those conversations yet when we bump into the first story. Um, okay, now it's an interesting kind of story that hits us just before Philip's story of the unit. And that's a story about Stephen and Saul. And uh, if you've ever read um, through the book of Acts, you may remember Stephen was another early apostle of the early church who because of his rather provocative things that he said, ends up getting um, stoned by a crowd of people who get enraged by the things that he's saying. And so he's, he's killed and the people um, who are doing the killing come and lay their kind of things at, at Saul's feet. He's the, he's the kind of the guru of the, of the mob mentality here saying yes, this is the kind of person we should be killing. And then we, we get to this little passage at the beginning of Acts chapter 8. So same chapter as the Philip story just a few verses earlier. And it says, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church of Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So Saul, if you do know the story, later becomes Paul and ends up writing significant chunks of the New Testament. Has a rather um, sketchy start to his story. Uh, and I think, in fact, when you read Paul, you can see the weight that that places on him and the way that he understands his life and grace and, and a sense of regret about the kind of man he was as a young man. But for, at this time in his life, he's a deeply religious man, Saul. Shaped by his religion in a way the kind of stories of faith that he has immersed himself in and come to see have shaped him in such a way that um, there's this very narrow and constrictive way of seeing the world. You've got to be right to be in and the people who agree with me are the right and in ones and everybody else needs to be crushed, everyone else needs to be excluded, punished, driven out, imprisoned, killed. Um, because for Saul at that time the stories of faith, which were potent and often stories of faith are quite potent in the way that they shape us um, caused him to be the kind of person that drew very tight boundaries and then sought to enforce those tight boundaries as, as aggressively as he could his worldview was small his faith story shaped in very small ways uh, and the walls were, were, were closed in for Saul in 
terms of what he saw as being allowable, okay, who could be in or not, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff. And so he's this exclusionary and even violent person at this point. And then we have this amazing contrast in the same chapter with the story of Philip that we read earlier, um, who is like it's like the opposite kind of story. Philip here, um, who I can only imagine is a, just a Enthusiastic introvert, what he sounds like, um, bounds up to a chariot, overhears the guy talking, says, Would you like me to explain that to you? Uh, what are you inviting up for a chat? And, um, and before the church has had any meetings about whether this is alright, when he starts talking to this Ethiopian eunuch, he doesn't go, This is, wow, this is really raising some interesting thoughts for me. I should take this back to the team and we'll have some meetings and uh, set up an agenda, you know, uh, put it in the minutes. Uh, and, and we'll make some decisions and then maybe in a, in a couple of years we'll send you a letter to you know uh, how this is going to go for you. Instead here, he just kind of, there's this expansive, curious embrace in the way that Philip approaches this story that is this direct kind of counter and contrast to the kind of way Saul was approaching reality, right? There's this really stark contrast between these two figures here. And their stories of faith were shaping the way their stance toward the world. Saul, story of faith, closed him down and shrunk his world. And for Philip, the, 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 the way in which Christ has reshaped his story of faith means that he sees the world in this very expansive, curious, and embracing way. Right, so, yeah? Yeah. Great. Joseph is he's on board. Um, so I want to say a few things about this story in particular with the young unit here. And um, help us understand a bit of what's going on in the story, and then we'll think a bit about what this might mean. For us today. So um, here we've got an African eunuch. So he's a Gentile, he's not Jewish. Um, he's obviously heard about the Jewish God Yahweh. And, and there was a category of people in, in the world at that time who were known as Gentiles who um, who sought to know or follow or worship the Jewish God Yahweh. Uh, the, the, the title given to them in the, you'll see it sometimes in the text is a God-fearer. Uh, so a God-fearer was a Gentile who was interested in Yahweh. A proselyte was a Gentile who was interested in Yahweh to the point where they were willing to be they were a man circumcised and to follow the Torah. So then a proselyte was like an official convert to Judaism. They weren't ethnically Jewish, but they were a Gentile convert to Judaism to the point where they lived like a Jew. And then they were Jewish folk. So it's likely that this unit um, perhaps as a God-fearer, or at the very least has an interest in who this Yahweh is. He's been to Jerusalem to worship. He's reading Isaiah, uh, and he's he's thinking about it. He's not Jewish. That's, a, I think, an important point. Right? Because at this point, Christianity is still very much a Jewish thing. Right? Um, and he's a eunuch. And... Um, there's two reasons why uh, someone might be a eunuch in the first century. Uh, one was it may have been some kind of birth um, disfigurement or, or deformity or something that had happened either genetically or during birth that meant someone was born um, with dysfunctional um, male genitalia, if we're going to get specific. Uh, and they would be seen as, a, seen as a unit and generally seen as somehow cursed, impure, uh, dysfunctional, not really a normal man. Right? Uh, and then there were those, and this is probably who our 
our friend here in the story falls into the second camp, which is those who were trained up to be slaves and servants. And so before they had puberty, they would be castrated um, as a way of um, ensuring that they don't go through puberty. And, um, and there's a few reasons why they would do that to slaves in, in this part of the world at this time. One of the reasons was that made the slave much more dependent on their master relationship because they would generally be ostracized in the wider community. Uh, if you were castrated before puberty, then your voice wouldn't break. And so, uh, at least not in the way that other men's voices would break, and so it would be very obvious very quickly as to what you were. Uh, and so, your opportunities in the wider world were limited, to say the least. Not to mention the fact you're already a slave, so that does limit opportunities somewhat. But it, it enforces that dependence system um, one of the big reasons why they would do it is because, especially for someone working in the Queen's court, is it's a very, very good way, if you are the uh, king, to make sure that uh, none of the slaves or servants sleep with the Queen. Uh, that's partly important because that's, that would be dishonouring to you as the king, of course, but also if they were to sleep with the Queen and produce offspring, those offspring now potentially have some rights to, to royal privileges, perhaps even com- compete bloodline wise. And so, what monarchs have realised over time was when you have kind of a, you know the potential for other royal offspring that aren't mine, that creates a lot of violence and tension in the kingdom. And so, what we can just do is just make sure that the only people, the only men who get to talk uh, to my wife are men who get castrated. So, there you go. Amen. May that bless you today. It's been so good to be with you. And uh, I look forward to coming back another time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, that's the kind of guy we've got. Now, they could acquire some power and influence because of being a unit slave. They could acquire some power and influence because they could be trusted not to get too close, right? Uh, and so they could climb quite high in official them whilst still being enslaved. And so that's probably, the, we've got, a, we've got a, a slave, a unit here, but he's been given responsibility for the treasury within the Queen's court. Um, and here we go with, with this unit who's interested in Yahweh. Just an African unit interested in Yahweh at this time. It's a very curious kind of story. And it's, you know, I find that curiosity interesting even from the perspective of the Torah itself. So there is a verse in the, in the Torah, in Deuteronomy, which is this now, this is another, I'm just quoting the Bible. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, if you feel this language is inappropriate, we'll take it up with the Lord. Uh, Deuteronomy 23, no one whose uh, testicles are crushed. Doesn't sound like a good time. Uh, whose penis is cut off shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. Um, so what do we see here? We actually see in the ancient world this perception of reality where people who were somehow uh, disfigured or dysfunctional uh, were seen as impure and somehow not able to come into the assembly. And so in the Torah, there's this quite exclusionary statement which keeps those people out of religious community in a place of belonging, right? Um, interestingly, that's not kind of where the story stops. And so what we see, even in the prophet Isaiah, who the, the eunuch is reading in this story, 
just a couple of chapters over from where he's reading about this servant and he's wondering who it is. And so scholars think it's possible um, the unit here is flipping through these pages and wondering exactly what's kind of going on in the story. He's reading Isaiah 53 about a servant who is maimed and crushed and disfigured and yet through this servant will come some kind of salvation. That's kind of an interesting idea. And then a couple of chapters over, there's another passage here in, uh, in Isaiah 56 where the prophet Isaiah himself begins to point forward to this hope that even the eunuch will find a place within God's assembly. And so, um, thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name to the rich that shall not be cut off. Um, and so even what even what we're seeing within the Jewish scriptures themselves is this movement to be able to say in the words of prophecy, you know what, I think God is taking us in a direction to open this story up a little more than we had thought. Um, and and it's adjacent to the story that, that Philip is reading, uh, sorry, the unit is reading. On this, on this chariot at this time. Um, so there's a really kind of interesting thing that's going on here. Philip is led by the Lord, and I think those kind of more spectacular bits where the angel turns up and, uh, and Philip suddenly is there and then he disappears again, um, those bits are included in the story, but I don't think because they're spectacular and it's kind of woohoo, uh, more because what they tell us is this is something God is doing. Right? This is something God is doing here. It's not that Philip is off on his own out on a um, wild tangent uh, and everyone else is just kind of going, well, this is a clearly not, not allowed. Um, the emphasis here is the fact that somehow God is doing this thing. And, um, and Philip like, awesomely goes along with it. I, I think Philip deserves a lot of credit in this story for the way in which he responds to what God is doing. Uh, he's not like Peter actually, who needs a series of visions and then, and then God to sort of do it anyway before Peter gets a chance to shut it down. Uh, Philip here is just like, alright, okay, let's go, yes, yeah, into it. Let's, uh, let's see what happens. He breaks, really, a lot of the rules of the story of faith that many of them held to. Uh, and he goes with the sense of what he thinks God is doing. And the way he tells the story of Jesus to this eunuch, Leads the unit to say, well then what should, what is to prevent me from, if what you're saying is true, then this is a bit of a journey. And he says, there's a water, uh, let's go over and you know, go So, um, there's this, there's this flow here that Philip is in that says actually, the way I'm trying to understand the story of my faith means that you are embraced and brought into the story in this really beautiful way. Um, Angela Solberg, who, who has written some academic work on this subject, uh, I really just want to quote just because of the title of the journal article. Because uh, this is the, I've read a lot of academic journal articles in my time, um, but this is the best title. No, that's no problem. <laughs> and, uh, and there's a great line in the article: "Is nuts or no nuts, the outsider is included." Um, so that's a word go away. Tell the difference. Um, 
what is all my anxiety all of this? Um, well, I think the story challenges us. I know it challenges me. And I don't mean it challenges me in kind of a, you're a terrible person. You know, like there are different ways of challenging. One way of challenging you is to go, did you guys know you're pretty terrible? You need to buck your ideas up. I suppose that's my kind of challenge. Um, that's not what I mean. But I do mean there's a challenge to what kind of life, what kind of faith, what kind of story, what kind, you know, do we do we live by and embrace? And how does that orient us to the world around us? Uh, not just to the world around us, actually, to ourselves also. Um, do we want the kind of religion we see in Saul's story? The close down, eliminate, crush, bury, stifle kind of religion? Or is it this curious, um, open faith that that Philip here seems to be on board with and embracing. Um, because, you know, um, stories can narrow us down, and they do. And it's not just, actually, it's not just religious stories that do this to us, right? The stories that we are told shape our view of reality, and often those stories um, close down possibility. Uh, even the kind of history that we're told, that we learn, the kind of view of the world that shapes us. It's often by people with, you know, history is written by the winners, as they say. Which is actually a big reason why I love the Bible. Because the Bible is like what would happen if history is written by the losers. And I, and I mean that in the best sense. Right? The Bible is written by the unders- people who are suffering under power rather than the people trying to dominate uh, with power. Even Christ's story itself is that kind of story. That's an aside. Okay, that just for free. Um, all free policy. Uh, and... And so, you know, this is the way kind of the, the, we're told, these are the kinds of stories we're told. We're told stories day in, day out, all the time. You, are, you live your life immersed in storytelling. And those stories are coming at you all of the time, telling you uh, what really matters and what doesn't, what your life should be about, what's meaningful and what's not, and how maybe your life isn't meaningful right now, but if you just did X, Y, Z, or hacked that, or were able to do this, then your life because that's the thing that matters or these are the kinds of people you should aspire to be like all of these stories that we are told that um, might seem in some respects like they're quite common stories but actually often what they're doing is telling us this is the way if you want your life to be like a, a good successful life this is what it should look like it looks like this um, you know we were, uh, I was chatting with um, Thomas and Hannah Joseph Brown um, this weekend, and we were talking about um, money and having lots of money, and how uh, how sort of there's this interesting paradox I find within myself, which is this: a part of me knows for sure that having lots of money does not make people happy, but a part of me for sure knows that if I have lots of money, I would definitely be happy. <laughs> Uh, and it's so interesting that those two things sit within me at the same time. And if you were to sit down and ask me kind of rationally, logically in a conversation, do you think having lots of money makes you happy? I'd be like, no, you know what? You know what makes me happy? Just loving Jesus. <laughs> uh, that whole family, family is what matters. Uh, relationships, good relationships. These are the things that matter. Um, but I know that instinctively a part of me is like, yeah, but money really would make me happy. <laughs> and the reason a part of me thinks that is because of how saturated that story lay in as a human being in the 21st century. 
I'm saturated in that story. And even when logically I don't agree with that story, my parts of me have been so trained and shaped by that story that parts of me still struggle to resist, even though I kind of know it's not true. Does anyone resonate with that? Yeah. Like if I was to offer you, uh, you know, if I was to come here and say, you know what, uh, anyone who wants it, I'll give you $10 million. But you should know that 95% of people who said yes to the $10 million will be more depressed and dysfunctional in two years' time. Right? I said that to you. And I said, now who wants $10 million? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right? If we're honest, we'll be like, yeah, I'd definitely be the two, I'd be the three to five percent who would make that work. Um, <laughs> and what that tells us is that actually there's a story about money that narrows in our imagination. It tells us that this is kind of what matters, and this is where happiness really comes from. And even if you're sort of tended to get the of that, you should know this is really the answer. Right? That's a, that's a kind of story that is coming at us all the time. Uh, and it actually narrows possibility. Uh, we think, oh, lots of money, that would give me a possibility, but in actual fact, it's that very story that itself is a closing in on imagination. So there's only one way to find it. Right? Uh, and so, so, so stories kind of work like this all the time for us. And then our faith tradition can do the same kind of thing. Faith tradition can be like, this is what your life should look like, this is how you should go, this is what kind of person you should look like, uh, these are the people who we should probably not like and disdain, and these are the people who we should like and uh, appreciate. Uh, these, these stories can act in ways to, to narrow us down, to close off imagination and close off possibility. And yet at the same time, I am a firm believer that within the Christian faith itself, there is this rich possibility found within it that can actually open us up to the world. Uh, to ourselves and to one another and to God, rather than kind of do that constricting, shutting off thing. Uh, Walter Brueggemann, who's a, a wonderful Old Testament scholar who I, who I love, does a lot of work on the prophets. He says, he says the prophets are able to imagine the world other than the way it is in front of them. And, and what he says about prophets here, in the Old Testament in particular, is that often what would happen was that there would be a king or there would be an empire of some kind that would be saying, this is the way reality is. Uh, and this is the only way that it is, and so you need to get on board with the program. And what the prophet would do would be to give voice to the idea that things don't have to be this way. There is another way for things to be, you know, one that doesn't create the kind of suffering that your system creates. And so on, right? Uh, and so the prophets, it wasn't that the prophets were there going, yeah, you're already uh, saying to you in 10 years you shall go to Ghana and be a missionary and then you'll come back and read the war waters, you know, the speaking circuit. Um, something like that. Um, <laughs> that was, yeah. was that for someone here? Was that for someone here? Uh, but, but prophets in the Old Testament were these people who had like, what Walter Brueggemann calls the prophetic imagination. Like, they were able to say, even though there's this kind of one story coming at us, God is opening up something in us, some kind of imagination in us to say, there's a different way of seeing reality here. Um, and for Brueggemann, it's Jesus then who most fully embodies this different way of seeing and of being. This ability that Jesus has to look at something in front of him and to see it differently than the way everybody else saw it. Some of those stories we even mentioned earlier on. You know, he encounters these people and everybody sees it one way and Jesus sees it a different way. Everybody says, ah, sinful woman, why are you letting her touch you? And Jesus is able to say, actually, 
There's something else going on here in the backstory. That's a very constrictive, narrow story that's closing you in and, and causing suffering for her. This is paraphrasing. Jesus doesn't say exactly like this, but essentially, I think what Jesus is saying, right? Instead, this woman becomes the hero of the story for Jesus. Um, and you will be remembered. Your name will, you know, you, this story will be remembered. Um, the paralytic who comes through the ceiling is disruptive, inconvenient, expensive, annoying, uh, right? If, like, generally speaking, if you were the one organising the meeting, I feel like those would be the feelings that you would have. Uh, and Jesus sees again the story differently. Uh, he's able to encounter these people. You know, some they, they, they come to him with a, with a man, man is blind and they say, okay, Jesus, two options. Paraphrasing me. Michael Frost translation vision. Uh, Jesus, two options. Who sins to make this man so that this man will be blind? Was it his sin or his parents' sin? That's the story of faith has shaped them in a way to see this reality, this thing in front of them, this reality in front of this person in front of them, through only those two possibilities. And Jesus is able to see a different possibility, one in which no one is to blame for this man being blind, right? Um, and so time and time again, Jesus acts in this kind of way of the prophetic imagination. And and I think it's that kind of tradition that Philip is in in the slipstream of. Philip has been shaped by the story of Jesus. And it shapes his faith in such a way that he's able to encounter this non-Jewish unit and say, you know what? I think this. I think, I think God's into this. I think God's doing something. Um, this ability to approach the situation with openness and with imagination and with curiosity and with embrace rather than elimination restriction, closed down, violence. Yeah? Uh, that, that contrast that we see. And, um, and so I find that a challenge, the way that I see the world, the way that, the way that my faith shapes me. Uh, I think sometimes, maybe for some of us, this does come naturally to us as we allow the story of Christ to shape us, and allow the Word of Spirit to be in us, and we become those, those kinds of people who are able to live with that sense of openness. And other times, like the soul, we need a moment of encounter or transformation or something to come along and knock us off our horse and say, you know what, there's a different way of seeing the world than the way that you're seeing it right now. Um, and that's the kind of experience that, that Saul has. And so there's something very genuine, I think, about the work of the Spirit to, to open us up here. One of my favorite theologians, a German by the name of Jürgen Moltmann, uh, says this, he says, In the tempest of the divine spirit of life, the final springtime of creation begins. And the men and women who've already experienced it here and now sense that life has come alive again and is worth loving. He's talking here about uh, essentially the resurrection of Christ. And that that's saying that the Spirit who raises Christ comes to live within us. And that the rising of Christ is like the, the final springtime of creation. That's his, that's his metaphor. Where it's this beautiful image of like something bursting into life. And then that life begins to spread and to move and to open us up. And so that's what it looks like when we start to experience the spirit that work in our lives. Um, that's one of the metaphors in the line of which I, I always appreciate the line of which the wardrobe um, reference with the lamppost from the what is what's the how does the phrase go? About the spare room or the from the lamp of spare room. Um, looking for a specific of my life which is the wardrobe reference here. Doesn't feel like it's landing. Get to move on. Uh, <laughs> I thought someone was going to help me out. It was actually crazy, but he just looked at me and said, 
apologise. <laughs> Thank you. You came to my aid. I appreciate that. The openness and grace. Um, in, in the line in which the wardrobe, if you have read it or seen it, then, then the, um, you should read it. Uh, but uh, when the, the witch is in control, right, it's always winter. And when Aslan starts to be on the moon, and you know Aslan's on the moon because the snow starts to melt and spring starts to come, right? And, and the witch gets outraged by the arrival of spring and everyone else sees it as the symbol of hope. It's this, it's this idea that somehow when, uh, and C.S. Lewis is doing some allegorical work here, somehow when Christ is at work, things come alive. Uh, life begins to emerge. Something, and, and there's, this, there's this desire that burns in us, hopefully, to sense that life has come alive again and the world is worth So, my final encouragement to you um, today as we, as we come to a close is this. Um, how do, you know, what story do we want to shape us? What kind of story of faith do we want to shape the way that we see ourselves and the world around us? In particular, we might even think about how this orients us to see ourselves. There are parts of my life that I find less acceptable than other parts. There are parts of my life that I would rather I didn't have to deal with. There are parts of my, you know, my parts of me that I like less than other parts. I don't know if you ever feel like that. Um, there are there are things in me that I wish were different. Uh, I behave sometimes in ways or I treat people in ways that I wish I did not. You know, but there's all sorts of things going on in me uh, at any given time that I, you know, I would have given just a, maybe two or three more inches of height would have been great. Uh, all sorts of things about me that I would change if I could, you know? Uh, some able to change over time and some actually just not. Um, so what kind of stance do I take towards those parts of myself? Do I see those parts of me that I, that I don't like or don't want? Do I see them as things that need to be crushed, stifled, buried, killed? Is that the kind of God story that shapes my stance towards those bits of me? Or am I able to actually approach myself with a sense of openness, with Philip's kind of story, to say, you know what, actually maybe God is able to, maybe God is big enough open up and accept all of that and then we can see where we go from there. That God is able to open up and embrace and accept me. If God can do that for me, then maybe I can do that for myself. A nice thing to try. Um, So that's one encouragement to you today. Which story of faith shapes the way you see yourself? Uh, And then the second is, which story of faith shapes the way that you see others? The world around you. As you go into your workplace or your family or whatever spaces you find yourself within this week, what story of faith shapes you? Does it shape you in ways that narrow you down, close you down, or does it shape you in ways that are able to open you up to what God might be doing in surprising places? Yeah? Okay. I'd love to say a prayer for you if I could. So if you're able to, then please stand. Able or happy to. A requirement. You must. You don't have to stand. Most of you are going with it. <laughs> oh, that's, that's a creepy spot. Um. Yeah, I'd love to celebrate with you today, this afternoon.
Hannah, I don't know, like Joseph said, I think. It was Joseph. We don't know what stories we all carry, uh, what battles we're fighting, what things we're wrestling with, what, what demons we're struggling with, so to speak, metaphorically. Um, you know, what what wrestles are going on within us or in our relationships, in our world, in our, in our wider places of reality. And yet, you know, in all of that range of stories and experiences that we bring to a community and to a gathering, and God is able to somehow be present to us in that and to offer us ways forward and to offer us possibility. So let's pray. God, I thank you that you are the one who is near, who is, who is within us, that your spirit is present to us, as close as our breath. Thank you that you are good, that we can trust you, that your stance toward us is one of embrace, that your stance toward us is one of openness. And so as we allow ourselves to trust that, would you help us to embrace that kind of story, to embrace that way of seeing and being in the world. For those of us who experience shame or regret or self-judgment, for those of us who see ourselves through very harsh filters, would your spirit um, bring a bit of springtime into those places in our lives, those places that can get dark and a bit claustrophobic? Would you bring a sense of openness and life into those spaces within us that we might be able to say that we are loved and embraced and that we are able to love and embrace ourselves also? And for those of us who desire to find some more openness in our world, who desire possibility and curiosity and expansiveness to be the kind of shape that our life takes, would you be at work in us, nudging us and prompting us, and even if we don't get teleported across the country, uh, may we somehow find the Spirit bumping into us and allowing us to see new things, to see with imagination what might be possible and what you might be doing in surprising places. Amen.